At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Right now. Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso, Pete Najarian, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, we're all over the after-hours action. Shares of Micron, the chipmaker, on the move on the back of earnings. The company's call is now underway. We'll bring you the trade on this chip stock straight ahead. Plus, pumping the brakes on Didi, the stock's skidding in its market debut to close well off the highs. So is this ride-hailing stock worth the trip? And later, we're shining a bright light on dark pools and off-exchange trading. Are they really putting retail investors at a disadvantage? Former Nasdaq CEO and chairman of Virtu Financial, Bob Greifeld, will join us to break it all down. We start off with a record-breaking first-half finale. The S&P 500 hitting another all-time high to close out the first half of the year with a 14% gain. So things are off to a great start. Our next guest says, just wait, it's about to get even better. Really? Fundstrat's Tom Lee just hiked his year-end S&P 500 price target by 7% to $4,600. That ties for a street high. Tom joins us right now. Tom, great to have you with us. Great to be here. You're not worried about slowing, slowing growth compared to earlier this year, an economy that reopened in the first half of the year and an economy that will sort of normalize in the back half of the year with the threat of, of tapering in some form? Uh... I think that, you know, I, I don't think recovery is a straight line up, but from what we can tell looking at both earnings revisions and, and conference calls and, and really talking to clients and businesses, I, I think there's still quite a lot of pent-up demand. I think both on the consumer side, right, there's the revenge spending, and then with both wealth effect and rising stock prices, strong credit markets, I think there's a corporate CapEx cycle coming, which is essentially corporate revenge capex. So I think there's a lot of positive catalysts for surprise in the second half. So you still like energy. Energy was a sector leader first half. You think that's still a winning ticket in the second half? Uh, yes. Uh, t- you know, to us, energy really sits in a special spot because I know investors, uh, you know, kind of cool to the idea of some inflation plays. But energy and, and oil really is a, is a, is a supply-demand sector that's got very attractive fundamentals, and then energy stocks have a huge catch-up trade to that. So it remains our, our top idea. Tom, sorry, it, the, the COVID trade, excuse me. Um, where are you on names that really actually underperformed in the first half of the year after being the story of 2020? So and to the extent, I know you spend a lot of time going through screens uh, and, and evaluating underperformance. Um, there are some really gross underperformers in the first half of the year. What do you think about some of those trades? Um, Tim, if you're referring to some of the secular growth and like the fangs, uh, I think they're going to be leaders in the second half. Um, I think their turn really came when interest rates and the panic about inflation cooled off in March. And that's, you know, shortly after those those stocks bottomed. But when I look at the second half, I think you're absolutely right. If the S&P is going to end the year up 25 percent and, you know, our rationale for doing that is that strong markets stay strong. 
then something like Apple or Amazon, which are up, you know, four or five percent, they could have a second half of, you know, 20 percent just to catch up to where the S&P ends the year. So I think there's going to be a huge amount of price appreciation coming from tech and FANG and some of these secular growth names. And part of it is, you know, it, we're not necessarily out of the woods in terms of COVID as well. I mean, I think there's still some uncertainty from investors and, you know, their willingness to embrace epicenter stocks broadly. Tom, how much attention are you paying to the 10-year yield, being as though it's sort of range-bound and you have both value and growth? Are there any flags that you're worried about as far as yield exploding or falling? Um, it's a great question. I mean, I, I don't agree. I don't disagree with the consensus view that rates should be higher in the future, you know, because we have reflation and we have an economy that's recovering and I think, uh, in general, activity picks up. So there, there should be sort of uh, reflationary pressures plus the millennials. Um, but I think it's really t- a question of timing. And to me, I think investors thought there was some urgency about where rates would move to and maybe a bit of a panic about that. And, you know, the belief that the Fed was behind the curve. Now I think there's kind of a, a realization the Fed may be correct on a lot of parts of that transitory argument. So I think rates... In the, sh- in the shorter term, probably undershoot people's expectations. And then that's great for the FANG trade as well. So, Tom, I, I don't disagree with you. I, I fully agree with you when it comes to the FANG trade. But I've got a question for you about Bitcoin. Where do you stand right now? We've had this volatility of Bitcoin where we were up above 60,000, pulled back underneath 30,000. And we've been kind of hanging right around this area right now, at least, for about 36,000, 35,000. Where do you stand right now? Do you see more upside at this point in time, or do we see ourselves just sort of backing and filling? Um, I mean, I think Bitcoin's acted really well because, uh, you know, the rug was pulled out from under it uh, this year from both the combination of like the threat of, you know, taxation and regulation in the U.S., and then essentially an outright national ban in China on mining. I mean, those two things could have caused a crypto winter. But instead, Bitcoin really held around 30,000, which I think is a really important level. And now I think, uh, look, it's going to consolidate for a bit. But I don't, I don't think it's uh, impossible to say that Bitcoin could exit the year around 100,000. So I think we're still, you know, in the bigger fractal, still a, a long-term positive story for Bitcoin. It's really about both the transformation of the financial system, but also the fact that it's a generational play. I mean, this is one of the big sort of you know, multi-decade stories. And I think it's it's really held up well in the face of bad news. Tom, I wanted to um, sort of dovetail off of the rates question. Um, when do you think the market starts to anticipate higher rates because of the Fed tapering? And I'm wondering if that comes, it sounds like you don't think that it comes in the back half of the year, or you think that the markets can see tapering in the cards and not react poorly to it, be just fine. Yeah, I'm probably more in the second camp. Um, you know, this most recent FOMC meeting was really the Fed taking off some of the tail risks uh, related to COVID. And so I think that was the shock that went through markets. And the S&P not only held, you know, not only actually acted pretty well. I mean, June was a great month, but interest rates cooperated too. So I think it's very possible that we could have a 2% tenure by the end of the year. And we're still S&P 4,600. 
and Fang could have a great year because, you know, at a 2% tenure, you're paying 50 times for a government bond. And I, I think Fang doesn't look expensive at 30 times. So I think there's still a huge TINA or relative trade on owning equities over credit, even at a 2% tenure. All right. Um, Tom, thanks so much for joining us. We do appreciate it. Great. Tom Lee of Fundstrat. You can read more about Tom's market call on our website, cbc.com slash pro. Guy, what's your take on being much more bullish, or more bullish, I should say, from where we are right now? He's done extraordinary work. I mean, if you listen to Tom, watch Tom, been on the show a number of times. I mean, he's been pretty steadfast, and being steadfast, he's been spot on. So, you know, far be it for me to, to cast aspersions one way or another. I think it's interesting, and in the last comment about you could see 2% at the end of the year in the tenure and still mm-hmm. see the market to his level along with Fang. That's a really interesting scenario that actually might play out. I'm not certain I see that happening, but you've know, you got to respect Tom's work. What I will say that we haven't talked about yet, and Tim brought this up last night, we've been bringing it up for quite some time, the leaders of this group, the leaders of the market have been the semis, and look at where the SMH closed today. I want to say you know, an all-time high, that 255 level had been resistance on the upside. We blew through, and some of these names have just been parabolic for good reason. So as long as the semis can continue, Higher Steve's point, the 10 year, which has been vacillating between 145 and 155, there's no reason to believe that the uh, SP won't go higher as well. I, I sort of caught on to that tech comment as well in terms of the yields going higher and tech going higher, and also that tech will be a performer in this environment when it was performer, a top performer in the pandemic environment. Can you have it both ways, where tech is the growth engine when the economy is stalled or down and out? And tech can be the growth engine when the economy is reopened and, and reflating, Tim. What do you think? I think you can. I think, it's, I think big mega cap tech is, is growth at a reasonable price. And, and I think they've been very defensive during periods where we've seen growth call under pressure. Um, everyone here has just pointed out, and Steve pointed out, you know, the fall in the tenure, uh, you know, the totally you know, disproportionate or, I should say, inverse to what happened with the dollar. So the second quarter was really about a, a, a move lower in yields and a sense that the industrial kind of value story from the first quarter was giving way to what was really punctuated only you know, at that Fed meeting. In other words, those trades were already starting to work. But if you look at where we are year to date, some of the, the real underperformers arguably have been Apple, have been Amazon, up you know, 2%, 5%. So I, I actually think that they are positioned for uh, all-weather stocks in the second half because it, like, if we got COVID again, mm-hmm. Amazon's going to outperform. And if we, let me restate that. If, if we actually have a resurgence and we are, we are, we are pulling back and the economy gets in a at least under the pressure of those headwinds. I, I think some of those same trades, at least in the mega cap tech land, work both ways. Yeah. Lumber is in 57% in 37 trading sessions. So everyone that was worried about inflation and was pointing to those types of things. Yeah, sure, and, and crude has managed to be up too. Yeah. But, but there's still a handful of things that are transitory. So there's no blanket statements either way, right? So that's the, way, that's the way I look at it. And Tom, Tom sees that. I, I don't see above 2% everything working. I think right. right here between 155 and 175. And Tom was careful to say it's FANG. So we're talking about, as, as to mention, mega cap growth stocks, Pete. What happens to high value tech at 2% yields? Software, for instance. What do you think? Well, uh, yeah. It's a great question, and I guess it depends on what, what these guys were just talking about, which would be the variant or, or any, you know, kind of an extension of what we'd already just gone through in 2020. So um, without that, I think that those, some, many of those names 
probably have some sort of a chance, Mel. But I think the reality is the names that I think folks would go for are the names that hit the pause button in a big way. And, and these guys were pointing it out, whether that means it's Amazon, which really hasn't done a whole lot, or it could be Apple, which hasn't done a whole lot. But they did have that second or, the, yeah, the second half of 2020 where they just absolutely were ripping. And everybody said, well, the markets are going higher, but it's only because of FANG. And then suddenly it became financials and, and, it, and it became energy and it became materials. And those took there. So I think there is this healthy sort of rotation consistently that we have been going through. And I think we could very easily see that once again, whether that means it's those high multiple stocks that maybe kind of kick back in. If there is any kind of a slowdown economically, they certainly would be some of the names that I think would probably start moving back up to the upside once again. But, you know, it really is interesting, Mel. I don't know if it's as much about the 10-year right now as it is more about the backdrop of what the potential from a medical standpoint, what's going to be going on over the next six months. All right. Coming up, the real read on the retail investor, former Nasdaq CEO and current chair of Virtu Financial, Bob Greifeld, is with us. We'll get his take on what is driving this retail trading boom and if he thinks it is really a level playing field out there for the new investor. But first, we're all over some after-hours action in the chip space. Micron on the move after reporting earnings. We've got those details when Fast Money returns. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Brought to you by Eden Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eden Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at EdenVance.com slash CNBC. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Micron. Shares are moving lower in the after-hour session. Let's get to Julia Borston with the details. Hey, Julia. Melissa, those shares moving lower despite Micron beating expectations across the board. The company also announced it's selling its, uh, one of its plants, the one in Utah, to Texas Instruments. We just want to point out that revenue earnings as well as margins all surpassed expectations for the fiscal third quarter, in which the company says it set multiple market and product revenue records and achieved the largest sequential earnings improvement in its history. The company also issued guidance for the next quarter, fiscal fourth quarter, that exceeded projections. CEO John 
Sanjay Maharotra saying that Micron is in the best position ever to capitalize on long-term demand trends across data center, intelligent edge, and user inter- user devices. He also weighed in on new types of demand, saying, quote, we are continuing to see record automotive and industrial segment demand, yet despite our best efforts, we may be unable to meet all the demand from these customers over the next few months due to certain non-memory semiconductor component shortages in our supply chain. There was a lot of commentary on the call, which is still ongoing, about demand outstripping supply. That might be one reason that shares are trading lower, uh, though it is also worth noting that the stock gained about 2.5% during the trading day today. Guys, back over to you. All right, Julia, thank you. Julia Borston, Guy Dami, what did you make of this quarter? It's, it's, a, it's a fantastic quarter. Just looking at it, I'm not really certain why it's lower. The only thing I can look at and say maybe NAN revenue was a slight miss. I don't think that's important. What I'll point you towards is operating came in close to 32%. I mean, just for point of reference, same quarter last year was 18% and much better than the 29.5%, 29.5% that the street was looking for. It's really a fantastic quarter, and you see the average selling prices higher as well. I mean, it's a company that's operating better. And to my opinion, it's still reasonable on a valuation level. BMO Capital put a 110 price target on it earlier today before earnings. I think the stock should go there. I mean, being supply constrained should be, in theory, a good thing. I mean, what gets these companies is when um, you're in the part of the cycle where they're making too much. You know, it's a commodity. It's commodity pricing. That's what's interesting here, because, you know, so DRAM and NAND pricing, it it was better. It's expected to actually go higher. And I think that's always the big fear for investors is that they're going to roll. And I I think the expectations for this August quarter were already pretty high. I I think that's really what this is. Guys, guys, there's nothing wrong here um, except for the fact that, look, if you want to push back on the supply constraints right now, ultimately that's a long-term positive. Look, the, the stock has had a nice move off of those lows, and the charts are actually quite interesting here. There's, there's, there's really nothing to sell this thing off of. You know what I'm really shocked at? Guy didn't use the term good news. Bad price bad action. Bad price action. Are you shocked? <laughs> A little bit. So DRAM is 70% of, of revenue. NAND is about 25%. There's a mixture in there. It should theoretically, the stock should theoretically move higher. But DRAM looks like it's flattening out. So it takes its lead from that. It's a forward-looking pricing mechanism. So I'd be a seller of Micron. Pete? You know, Mel, I think what, what I liked most about this call, quite honestly, was listening to the CEO, how confident he was. And he was projecting out forward that the DRAM would be up another 20 percent as, as far as some of the demand. And he's talking about the revenue being as strong as it is. These guys just mentioned that 70 plus percent of the revenue is in DRAM. So it, it's all very good. I think part of the issue might, might just be two weeks ago, the stock was, stock was trading at 76. It ran up to 85. So unless it was an absolute complete blowout quarter, which it was pretty close, but um, you just wondered what they had to say to be able to get this stock to continue the move that it's just made. So why wouldn't it just be a bit of a pause for now? And then I think it starts making those next legs up towards 110, like the BMO analyst was, was projecting and what Guy was just talking to as well. It doesn't seem that far-fetched, especially when you look at where this thing trades right now, what they've done, and, and, and the growth, and obviously the demand is there. More broadly, just yesterday we were talking about the SMH uh, semiconductor ETF and talking about how cyclical it was. Tim, you actually made this particular point. In a world, uh, in the world in which Tom Lee lives, in which the S&P 500 will go up another 7 plus percent or so. You have to have 
the SMH or the semiconductors lead. And I think that that's pretty interesting. And, and, and think about the trends that are keeping supply tight, but more importantly, uh, the demand dynamic here, mobile, AI, gaming. I mean, the, these, are, these are the places where even the commoditized chip plays, but certainly then the more exotic ones in, in NVIDIA, which, which dominated that, this could have been a part of that second quarter conversation. But those are the secular trends that are very important. So yes, I, I, look, markets don't move higher without the semis. All right, coming up, we're diving into the retail trading boom. New numbers on just how many retail investors are in the market. Former Nasdaq CEO and chairman of Virtu Financial, Bob Greifeld, will join us next. And later, Chinese ride-hailing company Didi hitting the skids in its market debut. The stock closing well off its intraday highs. Buckle up, we've got the details on that trade. Stick around, Fast Money's back right after this. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Welcome back to Fast Money. Uh, take a look at shares of Bed Bath & Beyond topping the tape today, uh, up 11 percent. 2021 outlook gets raised here. Um, this has been a, a Reddit favorite. But, Tim, what do you think of the fundamentals here? Well, again, I, I think the fundamentals are, are still somewhat challenged. But this is a company that has been forced to do some very aggressive restructuring during all this. And, and look, it has been a beneficiary of e-commerce. So um, I this has been a short interest story. This has been a company that I don't think its best days are in front of them. Um, but this kind of move gives you the sense of where the short interest is. I think there's a lot of scrambling here. Yeah. Um, Pete Nigerian, this is a turnaround story. I mean, you have to believe in that turnaround and the restructuring. Yep. Um, they've done a lot. They've shed lots of parts of the, the, the drugstore part of the business, for instance. They've slimmed down on the promotions. Maybe you're not getting a 20 percent coupon uh, anymore. I'm not. Sorry, um, Pete. Right. Sorry. Sorry, Pete. I know you like a deal. What do you make of the stock? <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's going to hold me back from buying more of those Keurigs and all the rest of those kinds of things. <laughs> I think the reality is, though, Mel, when we look at this stock, we see a stock that really does fit this whole Reddit sort of craze, right? Because we look at what the short interest is here, and they've got, obviously, the management is, is, is newer. They've been there for a little while now, trying to change things up a little bit. And while they're doing that, at the meantime, we're still seeing a stock that's basically got an incredible amount of short interest that does stand out for the crowd. And that's why I think you're seeing, when we see the moves, they're always dramatic. These volatile moves that we see out of this particular name or a, or a GameStop or an AMC, they're all very, very similar, and they're all very similar in the structure that we're looking at as well. So I think that this is, until we see those numbers start to change, Mel, I think we're going to see this name continue to be very volatile because that short interest is at a level right now where it makes a lot of sense for those that are going after exactly what they are doing right now. This stock hit 39 early in the session and then did pull back and still finished up significantly higher, but at $33. So there's a lot of activity in there. We see it almost every day. We've had four or five hits already in the month of June. Uh, June's over now, but the, the month of June, we've had four or five hits of unusual. So there's a lot going on in this stock that underneath that is telling me that this isn't over just yet. 
Yeah, what a staggering performance up 87% year to date. All right, we are just getting new numbers on how many retail investors are in the market. Morgan Stanley out with a new note today saying retail traders account for roughly 10% of daily stock trading volume here in the United States. That's down from 15% in September, but still well above the longer-term median. Joining us now to discuss this, Bob Greifeld, the former Nasdaq CEO, current chairman of Virtu Financial. Bob, it's always great to chat with you. Good to chat with you, Melissa. How are you doing today? We are all doing great. Thanks for asking. Um, I want to ask you about this retail trader boom because we've seen so many enter the markets. You, you see the activity in certain stocks in particular. Um, and, and I'm wondering if you think or if you can tell the retail investor that the, that the playing field is level for them. Because what really stands out when you go on some of these message boards, and I understand that this may not be representative of every single retail investor out there, but certainly a broad swath of the newer investor, they feel like the system is rigged. There is that perception there. No, I don't you know, feel that way at all. And I don't think that is any way indicative of the general retail investor. What we've seen over the fullness of time is retail investors get very engaged in the market when they think there's a profit opportunity for themselves. Right? It wasn't too many years ago we were complaining about the dearth of retail investors. And retail investors were not in the market several years ago because they didn't think the market was going to rise. So it's certainly a sign of bullishness when you see retail investors in the marketplace. And the retail investors today, as compared to a few years ago, certainly have the most efficient uh, opportunity to trade in the market, the most frictionless opportunity that's seen in this market across all time and across all markets you know, globally. I want to delve um, deeper into some of the issues that some of these investors have with, with the quote-unquote system, Bob. And as a chairman of Virtu Financial, I think you're probably in the former CEO of NASDAQ, you're probably the perfect person to address them. But I want to get at this issue of off-exchange trading. The numbers are pretty staggering. 47% of total volume in the United States is not routed through public or, or lit exchanges, so to speak. 38% go through wholesalers like a Virtu or a Citadel, 9% uh, through the dark pool. If you take a look at individual shares, like, for instance, Reddit favorite AMC, the vast majority of shares or the majority of shares on a daily basis actually trade off exchange. Should we be concerned that the pricing that we see is not a, a full and accurate price and so much gets routed off exchange, not on the public exchange? We see the quotes on the bottom of the, of the screen. The ticker is public exchange pricing. Yeah, so I, I would say it's very clear uh, that the lit exchanges are fundamental for price discovery. And it's important to recognize the lit exchanges inform in a mature way off exchange uh, prices. So when you see the prices, it is governed by the lit exchange. That system is working. Uh, and when you think about where does price discovery happen, it happens in the lit exchanges. And most importantly, right, where are the price setters happening, right? They can clearly happen in the dark, but we see today price formation, price setting is clearly happening on the lit exchanges. I think the markets are working well as a result of that. Vlad Tenev, the CEO of Robinhood, had an interesting um, solution, if you will, to this, and that is to allow the, the public exchanges to price in increments smaller than a penny, which could then, um, you know, that could, that could make it more competitive with some of the wholesalers in terms of pricing. Um, you guys make your money because you're able to undercut by even fractions of a penny and, and make that spread. Would that solve this problem? 
Well, I think that's a helpful step, but I think it has to be taken in conjunction with look at access fees. So to the extent that access fees were less than 50% of the minimum tick, uh, tick increment, I think that would make uh, you know a, a lot of sense. Uh, well, so I think there's definitely ways that we can improve the market in that regard. What would that do to, your, to, to Virtu's business if that were in place? Well, so Virtu, you know, has the situation where it's taking the counterpart of every trade. So if a retail buyer wants to, a uh, retail uh, trader wants to buy, then we have to sell, whether we want to sell or not. And then we have to manage our position and then the, manage the market as a result of that. So that dynamic doesn't change uh, per se with respect to changing uh, tick sizes. So Virtu has done a tremendous job over the years building up its ability to be the other side of where investor sentiment is. So when sellers want to sell, we have to buy, right, even though we might have the same sell bias. So all that dynamic doesn't directly tie into uh, you know, what we're talking about today. So our core competency is to be able to manage the inventory, manage the risk in an environment where we're providing liquidity on the opposite side of where the retail investor wants to be. Okay. Um, I want to also ask you about one issue that, that is – really hot on, on these investors' mind, Bob, and that is payment for order flow and whether or not it, it puts the retail investor at a disadvantage. Um, some people who are, are experts in market structure say that there is an inherent conflict of interest for um, Virtu uh, to do payment for order flow that um, best execution, you're actually looking to also maximize profits, so therefore there's an inherent conflict there. Can you address that? How do we know that, for instance, the price, the best price is actually the best price, and that price savings, whatever it may be, is passed on to that retail investor? Yeah, uh, so I think there's a degree of silliness to some of these arguments Mm -hmm. here, because one, you've got to step back and look at the retail marketplace today. So you have commission-free trading, and I've been around a lot longer than you, but I certainly remember uh, back in the day the cost of trading and the wideness of the spreads. So now we have a zero cost for trading with spreads that are at a penny and sometimes less. So it has never been a better time to be a retail investor in the history of mankind. So that's a very good thing. Now, Virtu has you know, a very difficult job, and I've been around this industry for a long period of time, so they have to guarantee not just the best price you see in the lit markets, but generally price improvement on top of that. And Virtu has paid out billions of dollars in price improvement to retail uh, investors. Retail investors are the direct beneficiary of that. Now, as a part of that, there is a payment for the flow. It varies based on the retail firm in, involved. And certainly nobody can hold it against a retail brokerage firm to have some source of revenue. Robinhood, Schwab, or others. And so payment of order flow is a certain part of that. But that doesn't mean that we have to look and say, okay, that is, you know, the fundamental question. The fundamental question is how is the retail investor being uh, treated? The retail investor is being treated incredibly well. There's no other place on the planet that gets that kind of retail trader invest, uh, ex- retail trader experience, right? They're not paying any commission. And they're getting an improvement on what's available in the lit exchanges. Uh, so when I'm looking for I'm looking for I'm looking for a problem to solve here. When you say billions of dollars in price improvement, that's a, that's the report that Virtu 
itself published $3 billion, I think the number was, in price improvement in, in 2020. Yeah, that's $3 billion directly in the pocket of a retail investor as compared to as Unless if the broker pockets some would. of that, which we just established, right? Um, no, 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 no. I'm saying the retail investor, right? So you'll think about a pie, right? Uh-huh. So the pie certainly has a price improvement element to it, which goes directly into the pocket of the retail investor. That $3 billion number is the number that went to retail investors, hard stop, right? They're the direct beneficiary of that. And the metrics you're comparing to is what's available in the lit market, right? So you get zero commission, $3 billion of price improvement. Where is the problem? Well, some, some dispute the, the $3 billion number, but I, I get what you're saying, Bob. Um, we're out of time, but we, we do hope to have you back. This is a great conversation, and there's so many more questions and, and answers to, to get out there. Bob, thank you. Thank you. Bob Greifeld, the chairman of Virtu. Um, the dispute that I was mentioning was um, the Wall Street Journal, at least, was reporting that according to SEC figures, which I haven't personally verified, uh, that the numbers that the wholesaler actually gave to the SEC, based on those numbers, the price improvement was actually $950 million. So it's a matter of how it calculates. That aside, that's a separate issue. But I, I, think, the take, I think the takeaway where we started out was the retail investors here. Mm-hmm. here to stay. So you buy the exchanges. So you have the CBOE, CME, and you have the ICE. And then also the indices are probably most likely moving higher because you have a wider base of investors. Yeah. So I, first of all, I'm not sure the retail investors here to stay. I, I mean, I think there's a number of factors that, that, that were probably one-offs for the retail investor. It's not to say that there isn't a proliferation of information. That there's a lot of very smart, motivated folks um, that are involved in, in in financial markets and have financial literacy. I, I think that the trade is virtue. Uh, I actually, look, um, this is, this is a, a, an incredible time to be in this position, especially as I think we're going into a much higher volatility. Any Fed equals more volatility. Um, the fact that you have uh, good and constructive market dynamics, and this is a stock that has not performed, really, frankly, um, during what I think are actually pretty good tailwinds. So I think those tailwinds will continue for them, especially as we get into high-frequency trading environment that I am sure um, is going to come as soon as the Fed mentions. I think it's here in the fourth quarter anyway. And by the way, Guy, you know, if you think that retail investors are the only ones trading AMC or GameStop, of course you're wrong. We pointed that out many times. But Doug Sifu, the CEO of Virtu himself, has said that, that institutions are trading alongside, and they're getting a lot of that volume as well. I think Bob just did an amazing job, and we had a special a couple weeks ago where one of the points I tried to make was the playing field's never been more flat for the retail investor. I mean, Pete can speak to this, as can Tim and Steve. I mean, decade, 15 years ago, or 20 years ago, when people were paying a quarter, an eighth, you know, above, above the print price, all on top of that paying a commission, it doesn't exist anymore. So there are a lot of things for people to be apoplectic about, but level playing field, in my opinion, is not one of them. All right. We've got a news alert here on Boeing. We've got to get to Phil LeBeau for that. Phil. Melissa, Boeing naming a new CFO, the new CFO who will be replacing uh, Greg Smith, who is leaving the company early next month and who will take the job permanently uh, in August, is Brian West. Brian West is currently or formerly the CFO of Refinitiv, leaving Refinitiv to join Boeing as the CFO. You might be saying, well, why are they hiring Brian West? It's all about a comfort and familiarity 
between the CEO, Dave Calhoun, and Brian West. If you look at their histories, going through Nielsen, also back to their days with GE Aviation, they have a long track record of working together. So he now comes in as the new CFO. Uh, Brian uh, is going to take over as the CFO in August. There will be an interim uh, person from the finance department at Boeing who will uh, run the department between the end of uh, or the beginning of July and then uh, the middle of August or so. Uh, but again, Brian West is the new CFO. He's got extensive experience in the aviation industry and in manufacturing. And there is a comfort level there between Dave Calhoun and him, and he is the new CFO for Boeing. Guys, back to you. Phil, thank you. Phil Bow. Tim? Well, that continuity of the management team is, is part of you know, the Dave Calhoun era. Also, he was a major executive at GE. So as, as Phil has pointed out, the, the aviation background, um, you know, a seasoned C-suite communicator probably is a lot to do with this. I don't think this is market-moving news, uh, but it's an important part of, of uh, the transformation of Boeing's C-suite. All right, coming up, Chinese ride-hailing company Didi making its big debut, public debut. We've got the details on that IPO and how Didi stacks up against Uber and Lyft. Plus, we've got a buzzkill coming your way. Virgin Galactic staying grounded today. We've got the details for you when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Chinese ride-hailing giant Didi barely eking out gains in its market debut. Bob Pisani's got more on this blockbuster block busted IPO. Bob. That's a good way to describe it. You know, DD popped nearly 20% early in its debut, Melissa, but investors' appetite cooled during the day, closing 1% higher from $14 where it was priced, which was already conservative. Its current market cap of less than $68 billion is below the $100 billion it was reportedly looking at just a few months ago. Now, that puts its value in between the other public ride-sharing companies, Uber at $94 billion, Lyft at around $20 billion. Ride-sharing has not been a great bet for public market investors. Uber and Lyft have underperformed the S&P 500 since going public a few years ago, as they remain profitable and their regulatory environment is still uncertain. Didi faces a similar outlook, but as a Chinese company, there's another layer of complexity. Its dominance in its home market is under scrutiny, and while its American counterparts narrowed their focus over the pandemic, Didi is still pushing into many other expensive businesses, from autonomous driving to food delivery to freight. Now, on top of that, U.S.-listed Chinese companies as a group have had a rough year. The KWEB ETF is down 9% in 2021, with some of the biggest names like Alibaba, Baidu, JD.com, Pinduoduo, all trading here in the red on the year. And, Melissa, this was a little disappointing in DD today. Remember, it opened at 16 and change, closed at 14.14, right on the low, meaning no retail investor who bought it today likely made much money at all. This has been a problem all year with the IPO market. All of the gains are made in the first day of trading this year. The aftermarket, after that first day, generally there's very, very little trade to be made after that first day. It's a little disappointing for retail investors in a great IPO environment. Yeah. Melissa? Bob, thank you. Bob Pisani. Okay. Remember, the ambition for DD was much greater. I mean, originally we were talking about a $100 billion valuation, so it's come down from even then. Pete, did you uh, traffic in this name today? Are you looking at it? I did not, but I, I am looking at it, Mel. I, I kind of expected to see what we're seeing, and based upon what Bob was saying, this really played out like so many other IPOs that we've seen where they've had a difficult time. Sometimes they've even pulled back a little bit from what they were actually going to deliver to the public markets. 
And that's just been part of the process. And it just feels a little bit weak right now. That doesn't mean, though, that there aren't going to be opportunities. I'm looking at Didi. I'll keep a very close eye on it. And, I'm, and I think if it starts to dip below some of the levels where it is now at 14, I think then that might be a possibility. But they've gone in so many different directions, and they haven't had the right direction yet. So I think that remains one of the problems. We talk about it with, with Uber sometimes, and we've talked about it with some of the other rideshare where they just have to have the right focus, but they've got to make money. And the, and the question that we've always been asking has been, when will you make money? There are projections out there, but it'll be interesting to see with Didi what the actual path is going to be because it seems to be, based upon what Bob just said, there are multiple different layers that they're trying to get into, and I think they really ought to focus on one early on and then master that and then move on. I mean, if you want a path to profitability in, in ride hailing, I mean, it, it's probably not going to be a DD, especially when it has, as, as Bob had mentioned, the black eye from being just a Chinese listed company. They haven't done well so far, guys. So of the three, DD, Lyft or Uber, would you rather rather? Whoa. Would you love the would you rather rather? It's Lyft. And, you know, they do have the pathway to profitability they've talked about for a while. You go back to their second quarter, I think, in May. The analysts seem to really like it. I know Brent Thill, who's probably the axe in the space from Jefferies put a $75 price target. Very quietly, uh, Lyft has gone from 45 to 60. I think it's going to challenge that 68 level that we saw a while back. And they think they will be profitable, but definitely by this time next year. So to me, the one that makes sense is Lyft. Coming up, powering higher. GE shares getting a big boost today. Option traders are looking to get in on the action. Uh, much that and much more when Fast Money returns. Miss a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. Welcome back. We've got a news alert on the world of college sports. Let's get to Kate Rogers for that. Hey, Kate. Hey, Melissa, and some big news for the world of college sports. The NCAA has adopted an interim name, image, and likeness policy here now saying that student college athletes will have the opportunity now to benefit from their name, image, and likeness. That begins on Thursday. Governance bodies in all three divisions today adopted rather this uniform interim policy suspending NCAA name, image, and likeness rules for all incoming and current student athletes in all sports. So once again, some big news there for all of those student athletes and that will begin on thursday back over to you all right thank you kate rogers pete this is great news for college athletes it really is mel because the reality is this is big business and and when i say that i'm talking about billions of dollars in the business itself and and i I, for a long time it wasn't the big business it was more about the scholarships and everything else but we have morphed into something far different now 20 30 40 years ago than than what it was and so because of what we're seeing now and because of the big money that's involved i think this makes a whole heck of a lot of sense for these athletes to be able to get that endorsement deal to be able to actually profit while they're there not everybody is absolutely guaranteed that next level that payment level of the professional side so i think this is a great decision by the ncaa i think they had to make this decision if they didn't i think that they were under huge pressure to maybe lose what they already own, which is the college sports world. And I, I think this was a monstrous decision, and that's why they decided to make it as quickly as they did. And just the background, of course, Pete, you speak from the vantage point of dealing with students, lots of students, right, yes. in Minnesota? Yes. 
Yes, at the University of Minnesota, a lot of people wearing that number 32 jersey back in the day, paying a little bit of money for it. I could have maybe capitalized, Mel, but uh, no, the reality is these, this is a monster business, and we all understand that, but the reality is the players do deserve a little something from this, and obviously they're going to get more than just a little something. They're going to get some endorsement deals that I think could be very, very sizable. All right, coming up, check out GE getting a nice boost today, and that has options traders plugging in. We'll tell you how they're playing this one when Fast Money returns. Welcome back. Take a look at the Kramer cam. Jim is talking with the CEO of Constellation Brands. Catch the full exclusive interview at the top of the hour on Mad Money. All right, check out shares of General Electric lighting up, gaining nearly 3% today. Options traders are eager to join the party. Tony Zane joins us to break down the action. Tony, what you see? Yeah, so GE trading in a range bound here over the past three or four months is starting to break out here. And we saw a fairly large bullish trade here with options today. Uh, if you look at GE today, traded about two times the average daily volume, but calls outpaced puts about four and a half to one. And one particular trade really stood out. 50,000 contracts of the January 2022 $14 calls were purchased for about a dollar earlier today. So this particular trader laid out $5 million in premium to bet that GE will be above $15, at least $15 by January 2022, which is about 11% premium or 11% higher than where it's currently trading today. Uh, Grasso, don't you have like a slogan for GE? Yeah, 20 yeah, 21 and 2021. Something and that's where it is. And what, uh, Wolf sees the, uh, I'm reading directly from it, sees healthcare split as a catalyst mm-hmm. for multiple expansion. This is at the epicenter for the reopening of the, of the economy. It's industrial, it's airplanes, it's everything you want to roll up. It's still a buy. I'm still holding it. All right. Tony, thank you. Tony Zhang for more options action. Be sure to catch the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up next, final trades. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Pete Nadarian. I'm going to give you Melco, Mel. I think we're starting to see a little bit of a change going on over there, and I see some huge option activity. I think this is going higher. Guy Adami. I'm going to give you a burrito blowout for the 4th of July, Mel. Look at CMG. Sucker's going higher. Yeah. I always wonder if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Steve Grasso. I'm going to go with an IPO today. It's Y-O-U, clear, secure. It was a very light float, only about 13 million shares. I think this one's going higher. Tim Seymour. Great having Bob Greifeld on the show, but I like Virtue not for that reason. It's a trading environment where they are one of the largest players. The valuation is certainly undemanding, and I think if you look at the environment for markets overall, it's their time. All right. Thanks for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.